from 11FS. This is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, Benjamin Ensor, Director of Research and Strategy. Thank you so much for downloading this podcast. If you like what you hear, why not recommend it to a friend? This week, we're talking about JP Morgan's former head of fintech launching TodayPay, which is intended to try and solve the problem about how long it takes to get refunds. If you buy the wrong thing, it can take days or longer to get the refund. You end up watching your credit card bill to work out, have I been refunded yet? Airwallex expands further into Latin America following its acquisition of Mexpago. And we talked about the fantastic potential, not only of the Mexican economy, but about making it easier to move money between Mexico and its big trading partners like the United States and Canada. And Money 2020 plans to get into the software game with the launch of its 20-fold platform, where Money 2020 is trying to expand from just being a once a year or a couple of times a year event into a continuous community where people who've previously attended Money 2020 events can find other people, find new investors, find uh, new businesses through the new 20-fold app, which will hopefully launch next year. We get into all of this and much more on today's show back after these messages. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to episode 798 of Fintech Insider. I'm Benjamin Ensel, Director of Research and Strategy here at 11FS. I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by my co-host, Kate Moody, Strategy Director at 11FS. How are you doing, Kate? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Um, 798. I mean, I know we do these shows all the time, but I just keep losing track. So that's very exciting. I know we were on like 666 not that long ago. (laughs) I remember that one for some reason. Um, You've been working on anything interesting recently? Lots of very interesting things that I'm not at liberty to discuss. But no, as always, like tons of, of really exciting stuff going on and always useful to um, you know, work with cool clients just to kind of pass the time in between recording these these exciting podcasts. So yeah, lots going on. Okay. And we are honoured to have two fabulous guests today who are going to help us break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. So firstly, it's a very welcome fintech inside return for Pranav Sood, Executive General Manager Emir at Airwallex. It's great to have you back. Please, can you remind our listeners who haven't met you before a little bit more about uh, you and your role at Airwallex, please? Absolutely. And firstly, thank you so much for having me back. I always think I'm going to be banned after the last time. So it's good to good to keep on getting the invite. Uh, we at Airwallex are a payments and financial platform for global businesses. We help our customers to collect money, to hold money, to convert money and send and spend that money around the world, both for themselves, but also to build embedded finance products for their customers. And uh, we serve many, many, many of customers, including people like Brex and, and Rippling and others from the fintech world, but also tens of thousands of SMEs globally as well. Fantastic. Thank you. I sincerely hope we've never banned anyone from this podcast, because if you don't have diversity of thinking, if you can't you know, challenge people, 
and you know where are you um and you know fintech is all about diverse thinking and challenging you know shibboleths isn't it so uh, <laughs> welcome to our next guest jeremy balkin the founder of today pay thank you for joining us jeremy we're obviously going to get into your news a little bit um but can you tell people who not come across you before a little bit about who you are and what you do sure ben and thanks for the opportunity to be here my name is jeremy balkin originally from australia live in new york uh, most recently led fintech uh, and payments corporate development at JP Morgan, and then left there to, to build a startup from the ground up, which we announced this week called TodayPay, and we're the world's first refunds as a service solution for marketplaces, merchants, insurance companies, and third-party logistic providers. Fantastic. Well, welcome, uh, welcome to both of you. All right, well, let's get into the news. So our first story is kind of Jeremy's story, uh, which is that JP Morgan's former head of fintech has launched a new payment technology solution called TodayPay. Uh, this was announced at Money 2020, and TodayPay is billed as an innovative new payment platform founded by JP Morgan's former head of fintech, Jeremy, who's just introduced himself. The new refund as a service platform promises to transform the refund process by offering instant refunds via a number of payment options. Though still in stealth, TodayPay already has some established backers, including Visa and Amazon Web Services, among others. TodayPay was built to decouple refunds, which Jeremy says is a payment solution from the return. Sorry, which, which Jeremy says is a payment solution separate it from the return, which is a logistics problem. In essence, the new approach to refunds is designed to increase checkout conversion rates, enhance customer loyalty, and reduce disputes and fraud. So, Jeremy. Obviously, we're going to come to you first. I'm sure you can tell us a little bit more about it and how it came about. Well, well thanks, Ben. And I, I think it really, like all good ideas, they come from your significant other. And in this case, it's my wife, um, who for many years, people, I think, incorrectly thought I was some sort of payments expert. But little did they know that actually my wife's the payments expert. Uh, you know, five years ago when my twins were born, my wife, Rebecca, used to uh, buy online, uh, often with the intention of returning, not knowing what size for our son or daughter or both. So she would often be buying four items with the intention to keep the two that fit to return the two that didn't. And one day we were in Manhattan out shopping in-store, uh, very unusually, not online, but in-store. And I took out my Amex to pay for, for something. And she grabbed my hand like this and said, pay with your debit card instead. And I was hugely embarrassed because I wasn't carrying the debit card at the time. And I asked her, you know, what did I miss here? And she said, she said, I noticed that I get the refunds faster on a debit card, often in two to three business days. When I'm a credit card, I'm always checking the statement. I never know when the money's coming back. I'm always calling the merchant to see if they even paid the money. They often say they did. It never appears until next month's credit card statement. And I left that experience going, my wife is the payments expert. And what did I miss here? And why does nobody look at, think about this sort of, this, 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 this magical refund rail that, that seems to be the, the best kept secret in, in payments. And so I spent the last five years really getting to understand every which way about why this, this rail is so broken. And I thought if someone wasn't going to fix it, then, you know, somebody better do that. Uh, and that's what led me to, to, to leaving the greatest job at the greatest firm in the world to, to go start from scratch and building this thing called Today Pay, which, which we've unveiled this week publicly and trying to democratize the refund rail and create an alternative refund payment rail for merchants, consumers, marketplaces, third-party logistics providers to have choice. It's not just about speed, but it's choice. And that's what I think is, is most important. We think of money, my choice is something that, that guides today pay. And we think that consumers and merchants should have choice 
and speed and certainty in the way payments are issued and received on on the refund side of the equation. So that's fascinating, um, and I. Um, <clears throat> I, I applaud your your uh, listening to your wife, uh, which I'm reminded of daily. Um, <laughs> as, as am I, by the way. As am I. Before I bring in Pranav and, and Kate, very quickly, why is the why is the refund process broken? I'm sure it's not a simple thing; otherwise, it would have been fixed. But what what are some of the sort of root causes of the, the sort of broken refund process? I think you have to look at the way the particularly the U.S. payments system is structured. First and foremost, I think rules and rails were designed and built that were fit for purpose 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. I think that's sort of one structural piece to this problem. I think the other is historically uh, merchants and consumers have probably accepted that refunds just have to be terrible and not realize that there could be a better way. And I think, again, part of that is a function of the way payments work today. I think also just consider the fact that we live in an instant gratification digital economy today. So again, when the rules were written, when the when the when the rails were designed, they would they were built for a set of circumstances and market conditions that were not like we have today. Uh, there are tons of structural uh, impediments, but that doesn't mean it has to be that way. And in fact, there's no reason it means it has to be that way. Uh, and in fact. I just think refunds has always been a place where people have accepted this is a place where money goes to die for a merchant. And we actually think <laughs> it, it, it can become an intelligent acquisition channel for merchants and an alternative refund rail needed to be built. And that's really the, the value proposition of today pay in its first instance. Um, and, and that's what's driving us to, to be the change. Because when you look into the way that the world was designed, it does not have to be this way. It just took someone to, to say, you know what, enough is enough, let's go fix it. Pranav, I'd love to bring you in here because you're a little bit of a payments expert too, though perhaps not at the same level as Jeremy's wife. Um, what, what, what do you what, what do you th- what do you think of this? Is this a is this a problem you recognise? Have you have you hit this a lot? Well, absolutely. We uh, at Airwallex serve a lot of e-commerce businesses. Um, the top end in people like Shein, for example, use our payment acceptance product uh, in order to be able to collect payments around the world, and. The process to, to return money for refunds is, is, a, is a horribly painful one for everybody involved. Uh, obviously, the, the consumer is the one waiting for their money to come back. But there are also people all the way through the value chain who are sitting wondering how to process that, that money. And I think what, what Jeremy said is, is absolutely spot on, which is the last five or six years have seen three or four really quite significant structural changes in the the landscape uh, around payments. So firstly, you know, during COVID, we saw a massive acceleration of, of e-commerce and, and a migration of you know, offline to online uh, selling. Secondly, we've seen a huge um, you know, proliferation of data uh, of, all, of all sorts, you know, through open banking and through a whole bunch of other uh, different avenues. And there, you know, there are other things as well, when you think about the, the quality of decision-making around credit as well, and the improvements that we've seen as a consequence of, of, of big data and, and the models that are now being used to do that. And so in that environment where you've had these three or four structural changes, I completely agree with what Jeremy said, which is uh, why would we carry on doing something that's, that's predicated on a different paradigm if, if, the, if the world has changed? Thank you. Um, Kate, what, what do you think? Is, is there, why, why hasn't this been done before? Is it because it hasn't been recognised as a problem? I mean, what, what? Well, yeah, I, loved, I love the point you made, Jeremy, about you know, customers maybe just accept that this is 
how things should be. And I think what I come across in my work all the time you know, as you know, a research nerd and somebody who speaks to customers all the time is you quite often get asked by by like a bank or something like that to you know, go do a survey, show me the thing that you know 90% of people want. And that's not really where innovation happens. Like innovation happens from looking, as you say, for the pain points, for the inefficiencies. And quite often, you know, customers, as you say, might just just might be used to accepting that. They might not have the perspective to see that there could be something better. And so I think that's what I found so exciting when I was reading this is, yeah, absolutely agree with everything you outlined in terms of how this is broken. And we see this particularly you know, again, in the context of the cost of living crisis for people where their budgets are really constrained, actually the the delay in a refund hitting their account can be huge. So actually, you know, getting that money back into someone's account faster could be the difference between someone being able to make it to the end of the month to their next salary hitting or not and having to slip into credit. So yeah, I'm I'm super excited about this. I went down such a rabbit warren of, of thinking about all the ways this could help customers as soon as I started reading about it. So yeah, super excited for you and your team. Thank you, Kate. If I may just say, <clears throat> you know, one, one thing that drives a team, <clears throat> and it's written on the wall, so to speak, is the speed of a payment can change someone's life. And that's what drives us as a team, if, if you think about the end customer. But I would just say one, I think, very important point um, is whilst this is very clearly a consumer pain point, actually it starts at the merchant level. Uh, because really the consumer is like the end of the supply chain on, on a refund. So, so they have the least agency of all. The merchant is is the one who has the agency. And to, to Ben, I think to your sort of inference of the question, why hasn't this done been done before? Is I would argue that merchants have never been more powerful in payments than they are today. I think one of the things we've seen over the last decade is this structural shift of power in payments and payment acceptance from issuers to merchants. And I think that is one of the greatest stories that has yet to be fully told. And so if you think about where we are now in 2023, almost 2024, the power is with the merchants and merchants should start using the power, I would argue, um, in, in many more ways they have. That's in part how we've purposefully designed this to put the hands in the power of the merchant to be able to get, dare I say, more of their fair share as it comes to, 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 to how e-commerce works. And therefore, the end user ultimately benefits through the consumer through a faster uh, payment with choice, with certainty but that ultimately benefits the merchant too by giving the merchant competition of how they want to issue a refund versus the status quo any more than the consumer gets an alternative to the status quo. So I think that that merchant piece structurally is very important to understand uh, and, and also why I think this has never been done or tried before in a meaningful way because I think that, that the circumstances are completely different. The merchant has more power than ever and we want to help them to, to use that in a, in a way that helps their end consumers ultimately as well as themselves. Is that part of why you didn't try to do this at JP Morgan? Because I was struck how you you know you described JP Morgan as I think I think you said the, the greatest firm in the world, right? Um, <laughs> is there something that here that couldn't have been done by JP Morgan? Because you know obviously JP Morgan has sort of embraced fintech, you know more than more than many established banks. Um, you know clearly uh, Jamie Dimon and others understand the potential of fintech at least. Um, was this something that couldn't really be done by a bank? You know, I, I no longer speak. Uh, for or on behalf of JP Morgan, but I will say that, um, you know, I had a pretty big day job to say the least there that was pretty full on and leaving that was the hardest decision of my life. Uh, I don't understate the, 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 the importance and the meaningfulness of serving a firm like JP Morgan. I'm a better professional because of my time there. I've learned more because of my time there. 
Um, but the reality is that JP Morgan is, is the most systemically important financial institution and bank on earth. Banks' business models are fundamentally different from, forget today pay, mm-hmm. just, just generally speaking, fintechs in of themselves. I think the role of banks, so to sort of take a sl- step to the side, the role of banks are incredibly important to help fintechs or, or payment companies or, or, or technology companies like ourselves in different ways than their core business model. That's why I think it's such a complementary um, uh, alliance uh, and partnership uh, that the roles that the banks like JP Morgan have played with with many others. So it's not a really a fair question to say, why couldn't this have been done there? It, it, it couldn't have been because it'd be a completely anathema and, and completely different to the core business of what, what, what the firm does and what we're trying to do and hopefully one day we'll be really successful in. So I think that's just one important sort of distinction there. But I think at the end of the day, you know, you have to also look at the structural, why does this problem exist? Like who benefits from the problem? And I think inefficiencies in payments, any more than the speed, mm-hmm. like who benefits from a slow payment? Well, you know, in many cases they are, the play, you know, that's, that's one of the reasons one has to look at the structure of, of this problem. And if you think about the role of a bank, by nature, a bank business model is to hold deposits. And so the longer one holds a deposit, the, the, the more interest and investment income the, the bank or the financial institution accrues, rightly so, that's their business model. So, so it's not a case of, it, it would just simply have been impossible to do. Suffice it to say, in my personal situation, you know, I told my colleagues that there was some personal risk in my life that I wanted to take. There was a few ideas that I wanted to pursue. This is just one of them. Um, and the time was right. I was 39 years old, two young kids. Um, although everyone keeps reminding me of mortgage, a wife, a <laughs> house, a family, family in Australia. Um, you must be absolutely certifiably mad to walk away from, you know, the, the comfort of JP Morgan to go and suffer as a startup founder. But so far, it's been a good trade. And, and you know, I've got so many family and friends left behind at JP Morgan that, you know, our journey together is not over. In many ways, this is just the next chapter of it. Fabulous. Well, best of best of luck. It's uh, super, super exciting. Unfortunately, we're going to need to move on to our next story. Um, but uh, really, really interesting and promising. Okay, so our next story is that Airwallex is continuing its Latin American expansion with the acquisition of Mexpago. Airwallex has agreed to acquire Mexpago, which is a payment service provider based in Mexico, as it continues its expansion throughout Latin America. Mexpago was founded in 2014 as a payments platform, enabling merchants to accept a number of modern payment types via a single platform. The acquisition comes as Airwallex's market value tops 5.5 billion US dollars, following an additional 100 million dollars of Series E funding last year. Airwallex recently reported year-on-year growth of over 400% in the Americas as it increases its footprint in Latin America. And just a few days ago, Airwallex released another report highlighting the unmet needs of small and medium-sized businesses to provide cross-border payments throughout the region. Uh, According to and I'm going to get this name horribly wrong. Um, so, Pranav, you'll have to correct me in a moment. <laughs> According to your uh, to Ravi Adusumili, who's the Executive General Manager of the Americas at Airwallex, um, he said, with the acquisition of Mexpago, we're on a path to become the number one payments and financial platform for modern businesses to go global. So, Pranav, I'm going to come to you both to correct my pronunciation, but also to tell us more about uh, you know, this story and, and the ambitions of Airwallex as a business. 
Well, look, I, I don't think I can correct your pronunciation. I think you did an absolutely knockout job, and uh, Ravi will be delighted that someone tried to even pronounce his surname, let alone uh, succeeded. Look, the Mexpago acquisition is, is really exciting for us. Uh, we are at heart an infrastructure company, and our, our product is an extremely global product, uh, which allows our customers to be able to collect and pay out all around the world. And, you know, the last few years for us have been a journey of building out that coverage and, and building out the reach that, that we have as a business. Even this year, you know, we've expanded geographically. So in my region, uh, we've, we've expanded into Israel, we've expanded across Europe and, and so on. And for us, as we look at uh, the, the, the kind of pathway to continue to grow, it's going to be really important to keep on filling in those gaps that we see in, in our coverage and in our infrastructure. So Mexpago, you know, why is it exciting? I think there are two you know, reasons, or maybe even three. One is Mexico itself is an incredibly exciting market. I'm sure I can see Kate nodding there, but Mexico is, you know, it's 130 odd million people. It's the US's second biggest trading partner. It's, I think, in the top two or three global re- recipients of remittances. Uh, and it's got an incredibly young and, and very, uh, very well uh, attuned a population who are more and more used to buying things, you know, online, buying things from overseas. And it's, it's a market that's ripe for some of the disruption and, and change that we've seen elsewhere in the world. So places like uh, the Middle East, for example, where you've seen very similar structural changes. So Mexico itself, extremely interesting market. The second thing is when you think about some of the, you know, the demand that we're seeing from uh, our customers, our software customers and, and fintech customers around the world, they want to be able to get access to that market you know, from outside. So they want to be able to send money and receive money and, and, and to be able to do that quickly and, and efficiently. And, and thirdly, you're seeing, and it kind of alludes a little bit back to the conversation we were having earlier with Jeremy around the e-commerce uh, world, you're seeing, I think, a, a trend towards reglobalization. So people moving supply chains and moving hubs away from some of the traditional places that they've been in Southeast Asia and to new places, you know, Mexico being, being one of them. So for all those reasons, it was a very, very obvious place for us to want to, to invest. And of course, I should say this is still subject to regulatory approval. So there's still some work to, to do until we can uh, to finalize this one. Uh, but this acquisition is, is one for us that gives us uh, a brilliant team, uh, access to you know, the licenses that, that the Mexpago team have gone and got, and also access to the, the, the kind of clearinghouse there, the system uh, is SPEI, which is the, the local payment rails uh, in, in, in Mexico as well. Well, so we're hoping that all of that together gives us a really nice springboard to continue to grow our infrastructure uh, and hopefully access to what I think is one of the world's most dynamic uh, and interesting uh, markets. And a quick question just to build on that. What what does an acquisition get you that a, that a partnership wouldn't? Because obviously you've, you've got a number of partnerships around the world um, and so on. Is there Are there things that you can do because you're acquiring or hopefully acquiring Mexpago that you wouldn't be able to do if you had just, let's say, just partnered with them? I think one is, of course, the speed. So it, it's a lot of, you know, we, we've gone and got, I don't know, 70, 80 licenses around the world ourselves uh, of all flavors. And getting a, a license, keeping a license is a very difficult and time-consuming thing. And so it's, it's obviously helpful if somebody else has gone through that work uh, already and you can benefit from it. Uh, I think the second thing, which is also important to us, is being as close to the metal as you possibly can be. And, and so, of course, you can partner with you know, fintechs around the world, but our preference is if we can find a way to go deeper and go closer to the core, then, then we should do that. Um, so it's speed and, and it's also depth that we think is really important. Kate, what do you, what do you think? Uh, is, this, is this exciting news? Um, 
Everything, I mean, yeah, sorry, I gave it away with my facial expression, but I find everything <laughs> about Mexico exciting, as, as Pranav like, rightly deduced. I mean, we've had so many guests on you know, over the last 12 months and beyond, right, who are doing their own thing in Mexico. Just an absolute ton of interesting fintechs coming out of that market, serving, you know, as Pranav said, like a really fascinating market opportunity. You know, and as a hub within LATAM as a whole, you know, which is seeing just a totally different population trajectory to what we're seeing in, in North America and in Europe. So yeah, it makes complete sense. And I suppose the the outcome of that is you know, Mexico isn't a market that's just getting started. Like it's a market where this innovation has been happening for a long time. So if you're just getting to the point where you are in a position to commit to Mexico and you were going to go in and start building from scratch, you know, as Pranav said, like getting those licenses, building those relationships takes time. So actually, I can totally see why an acquisition makes sense. You need to get into this market now and you need to be able to use it to kind of drive yourself forwards, you know, in the next couple of months, not 12 months down the line. So I can I can totally see why an acquisition would make sense in a market which is accelerating at the rate that Mexico is. Jeremy, what, what do you think? Um do you agree with Pranav's point that Mexico is not only super interesting as a market in its own right, just because of its sheer scale, but also because of that sort of that nearshoring, you know, the, its importance to the American economy, the Canadian economy? Um, what, do, what do you think? First things first, I think, let's just take a step back. Few outside of the Americas truly understand the scale of Mexico. You've got an economy of something like $1.3, $1.4 trillion of GDP. It's the world's top 20 economy population growth and economics data over the next sort of decade or two, you know, Mexico is going to be an economic force to be reckoned with. The second is one of the driving forces with the, the Mexican economy is tourism. Uh, and, you know, obviously payments in tourism for foreign guests wanting to, to seamlessly book those hotels, those restaurants, and vice versa is, is, is key. So the, payment, the, the, the speed of payments innovation that is becoming sort of Digital native in the in the economy is 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 one of the I think the tailwinds driving what Air Wallex has done, uh, and more importantly, I think look at the manufacturing hub that is Mexico. You know, seventy something like seventy million Americans speak Spanish, so the you know the the, the we, there's a border that's shared. Obviously, there's common culture uh, in many ways. So so this is a phenomenal um, growth story, and if you look at the Americas more broadly. Uh, you know, it's a phenomenal wave of innovation, of venture capital investment, of of uh, payment flows and fintech. This is a great story that needs to be told more, I think. And shout out to Airwallex with Jack, you know, the Aussie founder um, as well. Uh, he's from the second best city in Australia, though, as you just, just say. Um, Melbourne's the second best, not the best, as they often incorrectly tell everybody. Sydney would be number one. Um, but, but full credit to Jack and the team for, for taking an idea from, a piece of paper to execution and doing it at scale and making cross-border payments be as seamless as, as, a, as a peer-to-peer payment in any, in any home market. It's, it's absolutely incredible what they've done. Pranav, Jeremy makes a number of amusing and also important points in, in there. How important is the, the cross-border angle to this, right? Because in Mexico, you know, as Jeremy said, a huge economy. So, so being part of the Mexican sort of e-commerce ecosystem is, is fantastic in its own right. But how important is it to Airwalex that that cross-border trade between the states in Mexico and between other economies in Mexico? How much is that a part of the sort of the logic for you? Hugely. Um, Mexico is the US's second biggest trading partner after after Canada, I think, and, and not by much. They're very, very close uh, on that on that list. I think f- from our point of view, the, the, you know, to, to step back a, a, a bit from, from the question, the main problem that we're trying to solve as a business is that we live in a more and more globalized world in which the financial system has maintained its you know, incredibly fragmented nature. 
And so the more that we can do the hard work of you know, bringing together, knitting together the infrastructure in different countries into something that our customers can access really easily through a single set of APIs or, or through even through a, a dashboard, the easier it is for people who are trying to grow businesses across borders to focus on doing that rather than focus on how do I open a bank account? How does this local scheme work? You know, what do I need to collect in terms of documentation from my customers? Um, and so uh, that's what we're really trying to do here. And I think, as, as Jeremy and, and, and Kate have said, Mexico just happens to be one of the most exciting markets in, in the world to do it. Kate, 10, 15, 20 years ago, we'd have thought of sort of HSBC or Standard Chartered or Citibank or indeed JP Morgan as the sort of the firms that were sort of able to tie country different countries together financially and, and able to sort of enable cross-border money movement. But increasingly, it's firms like Airwallex, and if I don't mind mentioning a couple of competitors, you know, a Stripe or an Agen or whatever. Um, is that right? Are we are we sort of seeing the, the the fintechs actually becoming the way that money moves across borders? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I suppose to go back to the conversation we're having with Jeremy about you know the refund process being broken, you know, the international expansion process is broken, um, and we've seen that as kind of a major area of customer pain, customer frustration, and, and customer inefficiency. Um, you know, ever since I started you know, speaking to these types of businesses when I joined first joined Eleven FS, you know, nearly five years ago. So, I think there has been an understanding in these banks that actually there is a major problem here and there is something that customers need help with. But actually, you know, there are a lot of people in these organizations that would really love to fix this. But actually when you scrape beneath the surface, a lot of a lot of these financial institutions, you know, despite it being a global bank, actually there are lots of very separate regional and, and domestic systems. So actually creating this efficient system that runs across across the whole is very difficult for a lot of these banks who are starting again to get back to the topic earlier around how the world is going back to being more global you know these systems were built before before the world was as global as it was so it made total sense to have a system that was right for the market that you were in and didn't really think about everywhere else so yeah companies that are starting from from now and building that infrastructure now have a totally different set of trade-offs to make versus the ones that banks are making when they set up their systems all those yonks ago. So no, I think it's it's completely it's fascinating for me to see how far the likes of Airwallex can can get because for that customer who you know, that business that wants to expand, wants to grow, I think the default probably still might be in their heads that you know I should turn to my bank first. But I think the larger the likes of Airwallex and, and all its competitors get, I think that that opportunity for banks is going to rapidly slip away unless they, they do something fast. So yeah, a fascinating one. Pranav, I feel I should give the last word on this story to you. It's, it's fantastic news, fantastic work by you and your colleagues. Um, what's next? I mean, obviously, you can't tell us what your next acquisition target is. But um, do you have uh, do you have sort of plans up your sleeve? Do you have thing more good news coming? Look, we are working extremely hard behind the scenes to do a whole bunch of things in, in parallel. Of course, we're continuing to invest in building out our infrastructure. We are very focused on Latin America as a, as a region, so there will be other markets that we're able to announce exciting things in soon. We're also very focused on the Middle East, as I've mentioned. And I now actually have an office and, and a team in Tel Aviv, and, and we're looking around that region as well. And also in Southeast Asia, where we already have a pretty strong business and presence, but there are a number of markets where we feel that we need to invest more in. So that's certainly one aspect. Uh, we are continuing to extend and expand our product offering outside of just cross-border payments. So, you know, offering some exciting things that I'm probably not allowed to 
to, to disclose on this podcast, <laughs> but will be very, very soon. And then, you know, the main job is just making sure that we focus on our customers. And, you know, the last few months, we've been able to announce some really exciting new partnerships that we're, that we're launching. So powering the likes of Brex and, and others as they expand around the world. And uh, I'm, I'm very happy to say there's lots more of that to come. So hopefully much more good news to share soon. Well, fantastic. Congratulations again to you and all of your colleagues. Okay, we're just going to take a quick pause here and we will be back very shortly. Welcome back. Uh, before we get into the second half of the news, a quick note to go and check out our most recent Fintech Insider Insight show. Our Chief Executive, David Embrea, is joined by 11FS's Deputy Chief Executive, uh, Jason Bates, to discuss the concept of fast following. They unpick what they mean by a fast follower and how, when and why it's an appropriate strategy, but also when it's not. Is it always a bad thing? How can you get it right? What pitfalls to avoid getting it wrong and what is the impact on the end customer? Listen to our latest Fintech Insider Insights and find out. So go check out that episode in our podcast feed. It should be the one just below this. Let's get back into the news. So Money 2020 has announced the launch of 20fold. This was announced at its own event in Las Vegas last week. Money 2020 is planning to launch a new platform to connect fintech professionals with investment and partnership opportunities. 20fold will be available to all Money 2020 customers, with plans to roll out commercially to the rest of the industry. The platform believes its powerful discovery engine will enable more valuable connections more easily and improve the deal-making workflow. It also boasts its own AI chatbot, aptly named Finn, to provide real-time support to users. When the app launches in January 2024, over 80,000 fintechs will be listed and profiled. Um... Maybe I'll come to you, Jeremy, first as someone launching a new fintech. Is something like this needed? Do people need an app to connect better within the fintech industry? What do you think? Well, so having just been at 2020 uh, in Las Vegas, uh, I would say that what separated this year from probably the previous 10 years that I've been there is how the, the ecosystem, the conference, the community has evolved into not only launching this, but some other I think really value-added differentiators with the Money 2020 community, aligning the, the disruptors the, with, with the incumbents, the investors, with the, with the, with the banks, you know, all the different pieces of the ecosystem. I think this is, this is much needed. I think different, different communities do things differently. I would say that this has been the missing piece for Money 2020 in many ways. They also announced <clears throat> a, a startup network where they handpicked you know, five or six uh, companies that they sort of have selected as sort of changing the, the, the various verticals within within fintech and payments. And today they happen to be one of them by coincidence. But I think it just shows how innovative Scarlett and Zach and the whole team have been to recognize the power of community. And they were really the first. And so what new evolution of that interaction can the conference not just be like three days of the year. It can live on for 365 days in a medium whether it's through the app, through the chatbot, through the AI, through the connectivity, to make this a living, breathing uh, you know, solution that adds value to all aspects of the system of the ecosystem, I think makes makes a ton of sense. And I'm glad they're, they're they're launching that sooner rather than later, before somebody else does. So obviously, it's good for Money 2020. Otherwise, they they wouldn't be doing it. Um, I suppose the question is: is it is it good for for everybody else? You're obviously a fan, Pranav. What do you think? 
I don't know. I mean, I feel like <laughs> I feel like there are so many of these sorts of things where people pull together lists of, of companies of various sorts and uh, connect, you know, connect the dots or offer to connect the dots between them. Uh, I think what Money Twenty Twenty have done over the last few years is incredible. Uh, I wasn't at LA this year, uh, at Vegas this year, excuse me, but I was in in Amsterdam and, and we had you know big presence of both. Uh, but I also I feel like I've got a little bit of fatigue of people wanting to connect people in fintech. Um, so, so sorry if I'm being the uh, the naysayer. <laughs> well, let's see where, where where Kate is. I suppose I'm interested because you know we have lots of conversations with clients about various different you know, platforms or platform plays, and I suppose the issue that you always have is about you know you've got two sides of the of the coin, and you have to in order for it to be feasible or attractive you've got to get somebody at least one of those sides onto the platform quite quickly in bulk um and so i suppose the thing i find interesting about this is the fact that they are saying that they're going to have eighty thousand fintechs listed from day one which obviously they're able to do because they've got this community they've got all these registrations from from their conferences so yeah i, I think it's i think it is interesting um i'm intrigued to kind of see how it plays out um i suppose the thing that I'd love to find out more about is, I suppose, what that value exchange is going to be really like on on both sides, both the fintechs looking to find partnerships and also for the people looking to invest. I think when we've seen some of these platforms really take off is when they've provided really interesting analytics above and beyond just the straight matchmaking capabilities. So, you know, if you're a fintech looking at partners, like what can you see about their profile, their portfolio, how long do they invest, you know, what are their results and, and vice versa, like actually what are the metrics that partners can see, how can they compare one one fintech to another and sort of getting that that initial connection right is, is really interesting, but also what they choose to do with the underlying data beneath that. Um, so yeah, really, really hoping that I can speak to somebody <laughs> once it's launched in January to find out a bit more about like what the actual experience is like of, of using it. Um, and would be keen to get like an investor perspective as well, because we have lots of you know, really, really great leads who, who come onto the show from from different uh, you know, invest, investors who specialise in fintech. I assume they put a lot of time and effort into building that specialism. So does something like this undermine them or does it see that, you know, do they see it as something that makes their lives easier? So really keen to get their perspective too. One of my concerns is always about anything that's any kind of content that's behind a walled garden that becomes inaccessible and that you start getting a sort of exclusive network that other people can't access. Um, and, you know, money 2020 is expensive, right? Going to money 2020 costs a fair amount of money. Now, obviously, lots of people go and lots of people say that's a worthwhile investment. But of course, it is tougher if you're, uh, let's say you're between jobs, uh, or let's say you're relatively junior and you're just starting out in your career, you can't get to money 20 because you 2020 because you probably can't get the budget. And you maybe you can't afford it. And so I suppose one of my big questions is, well, who can who's going to be able to use 20 fold? Right? Is this going to be open to everybody? Or do you have to be a money 2020 attendee? Do you have to have a certain sum of money? And does that mean that actually, you know, people setting up fintechs, people with great ideas who maybe you know, sorry, Jeremy, don't have as good, you know, a stronger reputation and network as someone like you already had. Does that make it harder for founders? Does that make it hard for founders from outside the industry, people trying to get in from retail? Does this actually, is is it a good thing to have a closed community? You know, Ben, I, I think I hear everything you said, and, and I think that might be part of the rationale of, of what Money 2020 is trying to achieve here by saying, you know, maybe this this community can live and breathe for 365 days of the year in a different format to make it more accessible to the, especially to some of the, the very valid points you made earlier about folks in between roles, starting things up, etc. And maybe they'll, you know, 
I don't think a, a network of 80,000 of anything is, is, and I mean this in a sincere way, that exclusive, um, you know, if you look historically at these sorts of things. So I think this, I, I would argue, opens up the exclusivity of the core Money 2020 network to a, a much broader audience to make it more inclusive and probably more accessible to folks at the, at the, at the, the wider end of the pyramid looking to make their way up. So I actually think it's a really good thing. And, you know, also one of the, one of the biggest problems I've seen throughout my career is how does, how does that proverbial founder or that proverbial disruptor get the attention of those who can help them? And mm -hmm. it's really difficult. And now you've got all these sort of platforms that are all trying to sort of have the shiny toys that they can really hold tightly and then sort of very selectively share with, with their networks. And I think that's great if you're one of the chosen few. It's just, it's just not great if you're part of the 99.9% .9 that doesn't get a voice. So I think I think actually what what 2020 is trying to do here is actually to give the 99.9 percent .9 a voice, uh, but again we'll see what it, what how it all rolls a year from now. Uh, but I, I think it's I think it's actually more likely to achieve the purpose that you described than the alternative. I, I really like Kate's point, and, and you're kind of driving at the same thing about the sort of how easy it is to discover people in within it is going to be a crucial thing, right? It it. Does it become a community that makes it easier to find new, interesting people, people you don't know, companies you don't know, or does it just take you back to the same big, big, uh, you know, the same big names and, and sort of kind of not achieve that goal? And that's really, really tough. Um, you know, and the economics of the media industry are not easy, right? So, you know, all credit to Money 2020 because this is, and it's, it's tough to make media businesses work when there's so much free content out there. Okay, well, let's move on then to our next story, which is that Marketa is launching a credit card platform. So Marketa is hoping that its new credit card issuing platform, which supports any card type and format, will help to establish the company as a complete embedded finance solution. According to Marketa, brands can now embed a credit card into their own digital experience, allowing them to increase overall customer engagement with their product. The Marketa platform will allow brands to tailor products and credit offerings to the needs of their customers. And by harnessing real-time data, brands can access insights, set spending controls, and generate new cards instantly. The new technology is the result of Marketa's acquisition of Power Finance in January 2023. Before um, I, I bring in the panel, we contacted Marketa, whose Vice President of Product, Randy Fernando, had this to say. Earlier this week, we announced the launch of Marketa's new credit platform. And why we're so excited about that announcement is because it's been really the work of many members of the Marketa team over the last nine plus months. Back in February, my company, Power Finance, was acquired by Marketa. And today, with this announcement, we're able to deliver a few key components that we think are really going to change the game for folks looking to issue their own white-labeled embedded credit card experience. Number one, the new credit platform is an end-to-end -end credit issuance platform, meaning we provide issuing, processing, as well as full program management capabilities. Number two, we have a robust loyalty and rewards engine powering points, statement credit, and cash back. Lastly, powered by our low-code UI templates, these experiences are completely embedded within the brand's digital properties, meaning our clients are able to embed every aspect from the application flow to card management directly within their existing digital apps. Really excited about the future 
and to see how creative our customers will get as they reimagine what it means to issue their own credit cards. So, um, Pranav, I might throw this one to you. Who is this? Who's this interesting for? Do you think? I mean, who are the who are the brands who might want to issue credit cards? What sorts of companies might be interested in something like this? I mean, look, the the growth of embedded finance has been not particularly discriminatory in terms of which <laughs> which uh, which platforms or, or, or verticals it targets. Uh, I don't know. We were, we were talking about this earlier, but we actually just released a new report this week talking about just how much untapped demand there is for platforms to offer embedded finance uh, solutions. So I see a huge opportunity for SaaS platforms to do this. When you think about embedded you know, wallets and, and the kinds of things that they want to offer uh, their, their users, I see opportunities potentially for you know, retail businesses to do it. As, as, as Marketa talks about, they've, they've come up with quite a smart link with rewards as well that will be able to, to, to integrate into a single offering. Uh, and generally, I think there's, there's a lot of opportunity to, to do um, embedded uh, credit products uh, around the world. So I, I don't know if I have a smart answer about one particular customer. I just think that it, it's symptomatic of the larger trend towards embedded finance across uh, the software and, and kind of adjacent industries. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Kate, I mean, if Marketa's vision comes to fruition, you know, every single company all of us deal with will be, will be offering us a credit card. Um, <laughs> is that a good thing for customers? I mean, what are the risks here? involved in, in, in particularly credit card, particularly offering sort of credit cards to, to customers. Yeah, I can't, I can't say that a future where we're just inundated with credit cards fills me with hope and joy and warm, fuzzy feelings. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's I'm, I'm interested to know which markets they want to push this in first, because this, you know, I think credit cards is definitely one of the products where we see the most variation in terms of like basic kind of financial products. You know, you see huge variation in customer engagement with an appetite for credit cards you know a good friend of mine who's just moved back to the UK recently after working on a fintech kind of proposition in the US which is quite anchored around a credit card offering kind of messaged me saying you know oh crap nobody in the UK really wants credit cards um so you know i think it's i think it's it'll be interesting to see which markets say they, they focus on first and you know we know that there is a real benefit for customers in sort of compartmentalizing spend to some degree and we see people doing that through using you know particular cards for particular mental categories of spend or, or kind of finding it useful to split. But having a credit card for every single category of spend, I think would be massively overwhelming unless we've moved to a future where, you know, you've got the likes of Curve or people like that that are kind of consolidating all of these cards into one place. So yeah, I'm I'm intrigued, but a little bit sort of perplexed, I suppose, about like how they see this playing out in the long term, kind of what their what their big vision is. But yeah. I think they're still quite early on the journey of rolling this product out. From what I've heard, the, the number of customers using it is still relatively small. The one thing I would say, Kate, to your point is that we have to believe that there are platforms out there who understand the needs of their customers better than traditional banks do. And so if you can find a way to use the data that you have on transactional behavior or, or usage to offer contextual credit, to offer things that are relevant, to offer things that are, you know, hopefully also very price competitive, then you've got to hope that that's a, that's a good thing and, and hopefully a better one than, than sticking with the status quo. You know, if I, if I maybe can drop a proverbial bull in a China shop moment here, I think, I think the bigger 
picture to this is sort of a point I made much earlier on about the sort of the proverbial proverbial battle over the last decade between the merchants and the issuers and the merchants are winning. And this is proof of that. If you're a merchant now who's essentially outsourced their checkout of the last decade to buy now, pay later companies, digital wallets, you know, you've basically given free access to your most valuable real estate, which is your online checkout to all these third parties. Merchants are like, we don't need to do that anymore. We can just issue our own credit. And, and it's another threat to, to, to co-brand credit cards because a merchant doesn't necessarily need to go through. Historically, a co-brand credit card is like three parties. You have the network, the merchant, and the issuer. Um, you, one could argue that that's also can be disintermediated by the merchant um, essentially offering. It's not the card itself. It's, the card is irrelevant. It's the access to the credit. Mm-hmm. It's just the format of the credit. It's the access, not the ownership. So you could you could easily see merchants creating their own sort of pay in for BNPL installment type uh, point of sale solution for their for their customers, whether they're premium customers or every customer. I, I think this could be hugely hugely transformative. It makes a ton of sense. Um, and now, like anything, it's going to be about proof is in the pudding and adoption. And I think in the US, I could see this thing taken off in a material way quickly. So Marketa, of course, is not a credit issuer. So it would be partnering with uh, banks, you know, providing banking as a service, etc. Um, so in effect, what we're looking at here is potentially some of the banks that are offering banking as a service, uh, displacing the big banks that have got those, some of those, as you say, some of those co-branded credit card programs and so on. And the really interesting piece is potentially this piece you, you, that, that, that all three of you, I think, we're talking about, about tailoring the 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 credit based on data that perhaps the merchant has about who this customer is and so on. So interesting. Does it does it mean people get credit at a better price, potentially? Uh, if I could jump in there, I think it's possible. <clears throat> Although the one thing I would say, and this is for those who are less acquainted with, with just what is involved with a card scheme and, and issuing a card, the card itself <clears throat> and all the fancy bells and whistles that we heard from uh, just before, that's like the tip of the iceberg. The actual iceberg itself is the compliance program, KYC, AML. Uh, in the US alone, the amount of regulations around consumer finance, it's called Reg E, uh, SOC 2, compliance. Um, there's a whole bunch of rules around having customer service, phone numbers to call, dip and pin chain. Like that itself is the, is the engine for a successful program of any kind. And credit where it's due, Marketa not only built the front, the, the awesome technology piece to this, but they realized that that's to build the rest. And I think that's a huge competitive advantage. So that, that once you've got the building blocks of a program ready, then you can do all these fancy bells and whistles on top of that. Uh, and I think that's that's just a one bit of advice I would say to a lot of um, potential fintechs out there who are thinking, oh, let's go and issue a card, whether it's debit or credit. Make sure you get the foundational pieces pieces of a program right because you don't want to have problems with the regulators later. Um, and more importantly, you want to have a compliant program so that it's ultimately successful. So whilst it's very easy to compare which sexy platform to work with, just know that's just the, the tip of that iceberg. You've got to see the rest of it, the servicing part, the compliance part of it. Get that bit right first. Yeah, that's that's spot on because we've seen a number of um, a number of firms getting a slap on the wrist in North America and indeed in Europe for not doing all of those com- crucial pieces piece as well. Maybe one last thing. There's this point here that um, about loyalty schemes that, that Randy Fernando was making 
Kate, how how important is that? I mean, if a merchant has already got some kind of loyalty program going on or points going on and so on, you know, tying a credit into that seems like a logical extension. Is that is that not a killer app, but is that is that really compelling for customers, do you think? I think again, like it's one of the next big areas where I think we should start to see proper innovation is again, like we've got all of these very old world loyalty models about, you know, like collect five stamps or, you know, all these kind of very basic programs. Actually, what you're looking for is this dynamic way for a, a merchant or someone that you, you have a relationship with to to incentivize you to to interact with them. And that might be through like some of the stuff that, that Jeremy's building out, you know, like it might be that you can have complete confidence that you can buy and, and get your money back if it's not the right thing. It might be through a loyalty scheme. It might be through all sorts of other, other components. So yeah, I, I think loyalty as a whole space, again, I suppose if we go back to what I was saying earlier about, you have lots of conversations with banks about global expansion being really hard. Lots of banks are now sort of saying like, oh crap, what do we do about loyalty? Um, so I think that's definitely a space where these types of offerings, again, as we start to move some of the power back towards merchants, will put some of those big loyalty providers you know, under the cost to try and do more interesting things to compete with that. Well, super interesting story. And um, as, 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 as you all said, sort of Jeremy and Pranav and, and, and Kate, it's a fantastic achievement by Marketa. So, um, you know, well done to the team there and wish them every success with that. Okay, now for Big Click Energy, a quick fire roundup of some of the more clickworthy news from this week. And I've got the first one, which is that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has issued its open banking proposal. The long-awaited proposals would see the implementation of the Dodd-Frank Act Section 1033. This act would put the USA on a par with Europe, Hong Kong, and other regions around the world in driving forward open banking in the country. The proposed rule would provide standards and restrictions on the collection, use, and retention of consumer information. Among other things, the rule requires depository entities to make available for consumers and authorized third parties data relating to consumers' transactions and accounts. It establishes obligations for third parties accessing a consumer's data, including privacy protections for that data. It provides basic standards for data access, and it's intended to promote fair, open, and inclusive industry standards. Um, initially, the rules will apply to accounts and credit cards, but coverage could be extended in the future. So this is a big deal that people have been waiting for this for, well, pretty much a decade, um, bringing in some real regulations and some rules around open banking uh, in the States. But, but there's good news and bad news here. The good news is, great, here's some rules, fantastic, there's some consumer protections, fantastic, there's some rights, but there's some things missing. There's nothing here about brokerage accounts, for example, and nor are there really any regulations or around standards. And as we've seen across Europe, not having standards makes it so much harder um, to get open finance going. So there's a lot more to unpack and far too much for this episode, but we're going to come back to this story because this is a big one. Kate, you've got the next one. Yeah, our next story comes from the BBC, but again, covered in lots of different places. And that is the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK, is to lift the cap on bankers' bonuses in the UK. From the 31st of October, the cap on banker bonuses in the UK will be lifted, allowing financial institutions to once again offer unlimited incentives. The cap was introduced in 2014 by the EU following a public backlash after the 2008 financial crisis. The government hoped the new rules will support businesses to lower their fixed costs and compete more with the US and Asia. However, the move is not unanimously welcomed by the industry as the cap on bonuses has led to an overall increase in basic salaries. 
We're running a poll on LinkedIn to get your thoughts as it stands at the point of recording. 58% of respondents do not think the cap should be lifted, but 42% agree with the FCA. Um, Nice spicy one, I'm sure, to to put in this section. Um, I can see both sides of this one. Obviously, it's a very nuanced decision. Um, I think I'm probably going to risk being unpopular and say I'm at the moment uh, in favour of the 42%. I think bringing a cap in made total sense in the aftermath of 2008, given the damage that the banking sector had created in the wider sort of global economy. But it feels like one of those things that looks good on paper, but it doesn't change the reality that financial services is a highly remunerated sector. So if that money isn't coming from bonuses, you know, it's going to come from basic salary. And I think actually probably the more important thing is to look at you know, how are those bonuses decided and what are the metrics that drive them? You know, Historically, I think one of the biggest issues in, in the financial services sector has been that incentives are aligned to things which are not aligned to what customers want. Um, so actually, you know, if we see a return to bonuses, but bonuses that are driven by good, positive customer outcomes in line with what we're seeing in the UK around consumer duty, you know, I think that could be a much better system than just having bankers paid high basic salaries that have no connection to the good that they're creating society. So yeah, a caveated, maybe this could be a good thing, but looking forward to seeing how it rolls out. I'm in the 58%. (laughs) We can fight about it later. All right. Um, And our last quick story is that the UAE's central bank has launched an instant payments platform called Arnie. The new payments platform has been launched by the Central Bank of the United Arab Emirates and its subsidiary, Al Etihad Payments. Launched as a mobile app, it empowers its customers with instant and secure payments with an added QR code feature. Eight banks have already signed up to integrate Arnia at launch, and the Central Bank of the UAE has ambitions to roll this out to tens of thousands of merchants over the coming months. Um, I think it's fantastic news. Uh, We've seen instant payments um, being rolled out all around the world. It just makes things so much better. Um, for for consumers and merchants, indeed, as we were talking about earlier in this uh, in this episode, you know, every time money is slowed down, that's costing consumers. It's potentially putting some people at risk. If this enables people to get bills paid faster, fantastic. And the UAE has a big problem actually with late payment by billers, um, causing lots of stress for small businesses and so on. So bringing in instant payments to move money faster through the system uh, is going to be great news for uh, the UAE's economy. So well done to the central bank there. Sorry, that very, sounds very patronizing. That's going to be fantastic news for people in the UAE is what I meant. Okay, well, now it's time for the and finally section of the show, which is a look at something more offbeat from the news this week. So an attempted WhatsApp scam has gone viral after a man befriends the aspiring criminal. Bored WhatsApp user Chetty Aaron was surprised when someone posing as an HR professional attempted to get his personal information for a fake job vacancy. I have money, but I want love, jokes Chetty, as he engages the scammer in a lengthy conversation. The aspiring criminal eventually gave up, but the encounter went viral after Chetty shared the dialogue on social media. We ran our own poll on LinkedIn, and 7% of respondents admitted to being scammed on WhatsApp, of which nearly two-thirds confessed to being a financial services professional. So, um, have, have any of you... Uh, either fallen for or come across a sort of WhatsApp or other social uh, media scam? Or have you ever been contacted um, by a scammer? Who wants to go first? I've definitely had people like reach out to me on WhatsApp or Telegram, you know, who I suspect do not have 
good intentions you know you kind of get that first message being like you know trying to initiate a conversation so I think definitely I mean I, I hope I haven't actually fallen foul but I can totally see it's a, a definitely a channel where if you're if you're not on your guard then then it's easy for you to be contacted by people with you where you've not reached out yourself so yeah I, I have a 94 year old Indian granny and so I have a very direct link to Indian WhatsApp uh, and so periodically my, my granny will forward me things where she's completely convinced that David Attenborough is now selling CBD oil or, or something something <laughs> equally ridiculous um, she's she's yet to she's and I must make clear for anyone listening to this podcast David Attenborough is not selling CBD oil but my uh, my granny is is uh, is my conduit into that world uh, luckily, not not fallen for any yet, but um, they are they are getting more and more persistent. Uh, Jeremy, any any comparable experiences? Uh, I mean, I, I speak to my ninety one year old granny uh, via WhatsApp back in Australia every Saturday at eight am New York time. But so far, no scams yet. But I will say though, just wait till AI becomes ubiquitous and the scammers use AI as their preferred tool. It's going to be a very ugly world. So just. That's maybe a, a whole podcast in of itself to discuss and explore in the future. Yes, indeed. Well, someone someone pointed this out to me as well. Like, you know, just by the fact that we are doing this podcast, recording our voices, you know, even before like, AI becomes a thing, it's totally possible for somebody to. I probably shouldn't be saying this because just putting the ideas in people's head, but like, it's totally possible now to take mine and Benjamin's voices. who have probably said pretty much every configuration of words ever and chop it and change it into into adverse things so yeah. you're lucky Kate. people actually understand your accent as opposed to mine so i've got that benefit <laughs> for, for, for the time being but yeah it's true it's absolutely correct i'm sure none of our listeners are scammers but i can see that a scammer might go and find the recording yes <laughs> um yeah we um we, until relatively recently, we had a, a landline in our house until it got struck by lightning, um, which put an end to it. Um, but we used to get an enormous, we got more and more scam calls coming through that. Um, so without regulation, there's going to be a real problem. W were scammers always lazy? Um, you know, like this, this one, who clearly is just a bit amateur. Um, or, or are they actually just becoming frighteningly professional? I remember like when again like, going back to the world of like the landline phone, I remember as a kid, every time we would get like spam phone calls, I went through a period of time, probably just because I'm a very boring and belligerent person, of just trying to see how long I could keep them on the phone for. And so some of them were actually very committed. Some of them would stay on the phone for a very long period. You know, as a as a 14 year old with no <laughs> no money to no, no no money to give them or nothing to, to you know, if you just kept asking questions or delaying, like some of them would stay on the phone for a very long time. So my categorization of scammers would be that quite a lot of them are actually very persistent. So yeah, I'm I'm not sure any of them are going to reach out and sue us for describing them as, as lazy but um but maybe they, i don't know if they have an industry body maybe they might reach out and complain i don't know it's not going to work with an ai bot is it we're going to need our own ai bots to sort of engage the the scam bots <laughs> okay well this conversation is going to um get ridiculous soon so why don't we wrap up this week's uh, fintech insider thank you so much um to our guest today where can people find out a little bit more about you? Um, firstly, Pranav, where can people find out a little bit more about you and about Airwallex, please? So airwallex.com, and we're on all of the socials, and I am only on LinkedIn. I have no, no, no X or anything like that. Jeremy, how about you? Uh, todaypay.me. Todaypay.me is our, is our website. Um, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Uh, I think there's only one of me, but who knows after the AI spoofs, there might be 12. Uh, but certainly I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter at 
J-B-A-P-E-X is my handle. And of course, today pays on all the major socials. And Kate? Yeah, probably the best way to find me is on, on LinkedIn, Kate Moody, um, or you can drop me an email, katealanvest.com. And as for me, Benjamin Ensor, you can find me on LinkedIn uh, and you can find out about the work uh, that all the team are doing at 11 So thank you very much for listening. Um, please do join the conversation on social media or email us at podcasts at 11 Thank you all very much and goodbye. <laughs>